You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, I'm Jai. I'm one of the VFPMS or Victorian Forensic Paediatric Medical Service Fellows and today I'm delighted to have Dr Anne Smith, who's the Director of the Service, here to speak with us today to talk through um, what to do with your concerns if you find a child may have been abused or neglected and what is the process you go through as part of the forensic workup. Hi Anne, thanks so much for finding some time for us today. You're very welcome. And let's say that I'm in the emergency department and I've come across a child um, who I think has been injured by their caregiver. I've taken a forensic history. I've spoken with my senior in ED. I've also consulted the, or am consulting the VFPMS. What's the next step in my assessment, do you think? Well, probably both your consultant and the VFPMS would have spoken with you about the nature of your physical examination. And a top to toe looking at all of the skin is required, particularly for infants. Now, I appreciate that when people are working hard and fast in the emergency department, there is a risk that nappies won't necessarily always be taken off, particularly older children, or that some clothing might obscure part of the skin. But when you're thinking non-accidental injury or whatever you want to call it, intentional or deliberate or whatever, then you really do need to take all of the clothes off and have a really good look at the skin as well as in the orifices. So in the mouth, and that's often involving tongue depressor, looking at buccal mucosa up against teeth, in the ears and up the nose. You don't necessarily need to do a thorough genital examination unless sexual abuse is a concern, but certainly to have a look at all of the skin top to toe is imperative. Palpating limbs to feel lumps, bumps, bony deformity in case there's an old healed fracture or perhaps even a more recent fracture. And then neurological examination, again, particularly in the infants, feeling fontanelles, making sure that there's no signs or symptoms of head injury or neck injury that might raise concern about abusive head trauma. And then after that comes the decision making in relation to do I have persisting or even more serious concerns about inflicted injury or are my concerns actually allayed and I've found a medical cause that's mimicking abusive um, injuries or um, you know, I remain somewhat uncertain and the child needs further investigations. So speaking to some of those extra investigations, we often uh, within the VFPMS service when we're assessing a child recommend things like clotting studies or imaging studies. How do I, in the emergency department, know if this child needs further investigations? Two main strategies. One, pick up the telephone and have a conversation with someone. That's always a good strategy. And VFPMS are on call 24-7 to be able to provide advice if people want some advice in relation to investigations that might be performed. Usually, but not always, usually we would say... um, for, for relatively simple injuries, these are the investigations we'd recommend if the story is pretty clear cut and the situation raises significant concern. If it's more in the grey zone and we feel that we might actually provide better medical care if the VFPMS team came and did the forensic investigation and then the decision was made about additional investigations, that's another pathway that might be followed under some circumstances. The things that are often useful very early on are making sure that there's adequate photographs taken of injuries. 
very keen to get very good high quality photographs and just to warn people a little bit that haiku is great for a little aid memoir type photographs but in general terms is insufficient for obtaining forensic evidence of injury such that it will withstand scrutiny in court. So if this really looks like a serious situation, uh, the child has an injury where you think it may well be non-accidental trauma, particularly more serious non-accidental trauma, I'd wholeheartedly encourage people to contact the uh, photographers and to get proper clinical photographs taken of injury. And for things like burns where the clinical photographers will take images of the outside, the margins of the burns, that's often important in helping us determine the cause of the burn. Whereas most doctors, nurses in the emergency department tend to, you know, good old right angles from the injury, take a picture of the burn in toto, rather than looking at aspects of the burn that might help us determine whether it's a flow pattern or a splash pattern or something, immersion pattern, something like that for a scald. We're really lucky at the RCH to have clinical photographers on call 24-7. In very general terms, is there any advice you'd give if I'm at a different hospital and they don't have a clinical photographer to try and get the best picture that might help? In general terms, photographs are absolutely worth their weight in gold. They don't replace a good detailed description, so people have to describe what they see. First and foremost, you describe what you see. So a photo is an adjunct, and there are all sorts of problems in relation to clinical photography in terms of um, just general medical staff taking photographs, the propensity for altering them using software, having evidence that the image hasn't been altered in any way becomes an issue sometimes in court. So leaving all of those things aside, photographs are still excellent to have of injured children. They need to be securely stored and you need to have an audit trail to who has access to them. You know, all of those things are important too. But in terms of doctors and nurses taking images themselves, personally, I think provided it's not genital images and provided there's a mechanism in place for the image going off the doctor's or nurse's phone into the medical record quick smart, like there is with Haiku, I think that's an excellent system, then I think taking an image yourself is great. Unfortunately, most of the hospitals around Victoria don't have the same capacity for the image to go straight off the doctor's phone. So I think then then needs to be this second process. If the doctor's taking an image with their smartphone, to then have that image put into the medical record in a process that enables that image to be deleted from the doctor's phone as soon as is practicable. And do not, do not, do not, do not take genital images on your own phone. Excellent advice. <laughs> um, we alluded to some extra tests after speaking with VFPMS you might do, things like blood tests and imaging tests. Now I know on the VFPMS website there's some guidelines that I could follow um, that talk through some of those tests. Um, what are some of the tests we might consider for a child who came in with bruising, for instance? There are different lines of investigation and it would depend on age of child, extent of bruising, how seriously you are considering medical causes, presence or absence of petechiae. A number of factors are going to influence your decision about what tests to perform. In general terms, no tests are applicable in some circumstances. A child who, for example, has extensive buttock bruising in a typical pattern of spanking. You know, 
Do you actually need to do medical tests in that circumstance? Probably not in a, for example, primary school age child. Other situations, you've got a young infant with widespread bruises. I would certainly consider doing my top four, which is prothrombin time, INR, APPT, full blood examination and a fibrinogen. In situations where you're more seriously considering underlying medical causes or you've got a child who you think might have abusive head trauma, more extensive investigations in relation to coagulation studies are required in those circumstances. So then you're considering tests of clotting factors, um, you're certainly considering von Willebrand's in older children, you know, arguably not so much in the under three months where maternal proteins are going to already be in the baby's blood and so... It's not as likely a cause of subdural hemorrhage, for example, as some other medical conditions. Platelet function tests might need to be considered and you're looking potentially at discussing the situation with a haematologist, getting some additional advice about some additional clotting studies under certain circumstances. It all sounds very tricky. I'm glad that VFPMS are on call 24-7 so I could still ask for their advice in navigating through those tests. In terms of other tests, so we also talked about imaging. There are specific imaging tests. I see or many children have a skeletal survey, for instance. Um, can we talk a little bit about skeletal surveys, bone scans and what they add to the forensic approach or forensic assessment? Two things really. One is to determine the extent of bone injury and the other is to detect occult bone injury. In terms of the ideal medical imaging tests to perform, I'd have to say that's controversial and becoming perhaps a little more controversial. Back in the old days, we used to recommend skeletal survey and bone scan in children under two. Both tests are done well in this hospital and research from this hospital demonstrated, and other hospitals as well, demonstrated a higher number of children with occult bone fractures detected by doing both tests as opposed to just doing one test, so just a skeletal survey alone. Um, and there are a few studies really to help us determine the extra pickup locally from doing two skeletal surveys two weeks apart and a number of families in which uh, suspicion of occult bone injury has been raised the parents would decline to come back for the second skeletal survey so we're left with an incomplete study so there are problems related to that. CT may well be the way to go in the future particularly in terms of CT chest and picking up occult rib fractures so people might need to consider whether that's a reasonable alternative in some young infants where occult rib fracture is suspected and you want a quick diagnosis and you're reluctant to consider the dose of radiation associated with a bone scan. But consulting with the radiology department, talking with VFPMS, considering all the options, I think is a very sensible way to go. So bringing it back to the ED, if I've seen this child now, me and my senior have done um, an assessment. I've spoken with VFPMS and with advice. <laughs> We're doing some investigations and I've been asked to speak with child protection. How do I actually speak with child protection and what do I say? You ring up the child protection <laughs> office in hours where the child resides. And that's a little tricky because you've got the child protection region where the child lives and police are involved in relation to the 
location of the supposed crime or the possible crime. So you might not have uh, good linkages between child protection police in any particular region because it's not the same criteria used to determine which group becomes involved. So if you're ringing up child protection, hello, who am I? I'm ringing in relation to this particular child, date of birth. They will want to know the family constellation. So they'll ask you questions that you think, look, come on, cut to the chase. I want to tell you about this child. They're saying, what's the date of birth of the siblings? And what's their address? And have they both lived there for a long time? You know, all of those sort of things. Then they'll want to know specifically what your concerns are. So the more you can word your um, the information that you're giving to child protection in language that will ring in a meaningful way to them, the better. So doctors and nurses ringing up child protection and saying, you know, it's in the child's best interest or it's, you know, I'm concerned about their harm. Child protection will want to know detail about precisely what you feel uh, is the risk to the child and the evidence upon which you are basing your opinion. Why are you concerned? Thank you, Em. So the last is, um, well, before I was one of the VFPMS fellows, I had no idea how to write a forensic report. Um, after seeing a child in hospital, some of the advice we give is, as part of the assessment of VFPMS report or a forensic report rather is written. I know that there's some instructions on the VFPMS website um, and a template about how to write a report. In addition to those, have you got any specific tips on what people should do in terms of documentation or writing a forensic report? You can't write a good forensic report unless you've documented everything really thoroughly in the history first. And in order to document it, you have to have asked the right questions and done the good examination. So good clinical work forms the basis upon which you are writing a good forensic medical report. The VFPMS documentation on the website is meant to be helpful. It is not meant to be limiting in any way. So if people feel that they've got a better way of doing things and they can improve on the documentation that VFPMS has provided, please feel free to do so. The pro forma is there as a recipe for people to use so that things aren't forgotten and it seems to work pretty well. The template is meant to be as simple as possible with some hints and tips and instructions to try and make that process as quick and easy as possible. And in addition to that, VFPMS is also happy to help people with their drafts of reports to provide some peer review. We have a team of peer reviewers who will provide assistance and help. And for people in regional hospitals, we're also happy to provide telephone advice or to talk about wording of opinions that might be useful under certain circumstances. Thanks, Anne. That was really useful. So once I've written a forensic report, um, having sought some guidance from VFPMS, um, if I was to get a subpoena and be asked to be or to appear in court, um, what do I do? Well, <laughs> um, what might happen, um, and where could I go for some extra information before I have to actually appear in court? It's all a bit scary. Most people panic when they get the subpoena, <laughs> but my advice is. Don't panic. It's like the saying goes, you know, keep calm and etc. So it's, it's not to panic. It's going to be all right. The chance of actually ending up in court when you get a subpoena, it's probably less than 50-50. So the chances are that this may well evaporate, go away, be resolved, and you won't be required to stand in the witness box. But you might. So I think it's useful to, as the um, subpoena 
arrives, you ring the person who's issued the subpoena and have a talk to them about the situation. As it gets closer to the date of the hearing, to have a talk with someone who has been to court before. Now, that might be someone on your team, it might be VFPMS, it might be someone external to you. And depending on the circumstances, different advice might be required. So I can certainly offer VFPMS staff to go through cases, to help prepare people, to suggest some questions that might be asked, to do a bit of coaching. You know, it's really just a little bit of mentorship and a bit of coaching to help people imagine what might happen if you get asked this particular question and how you might phrase answers. Which is exactly useful. Thank you. <laughs> puts my <laughs> concerns in me. Um, so, and in so some take-home messages today, I suppose we've gone through a lot, but in trying to assess a child for physical injury, making sure that there's thorough examination and by that top to tail including of some nitty-gritty places that people often miss including orifices would be step one to the assessment investigation process is very sticky um, and is dependent on case to case so asking vfpms for some advice early together with my seniors to try and formulate a plan for what sorts of investigations might be appropriate um, for each child making sure that when i talk to child protection i give them the most detailed information that i can to get them or give them the clearest picture about where my concerns for a child's safety might come from and then in terms of forensic report writing we have a resource on the VFPMS website and if it does eventually come to court you'd be very unlucky but we still have the VFPMS to give us some support and guidance around attendance dates is that about right sounds good perfect thanks so much Anne thanks for listening please view the description section below for more information on this topic The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.